Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on the morning of Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? Uh, fine, Tony, as well as one can be given the craziness of the world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine has clearly caused an enormous amount of suffering in that country. It's also had wider economic implications. It's those economic implications that we're gonna to discuss today. Glenn, as we're recording this episode, it's difficult to know how long the conflict will last or how it might be resolved. But at this point, what can we say about the economic effects on the world economy in terms of markets for oil or other commodities, global supply chains, or any other factors? Well, it's a great and sad question, Tony. I mean, obviously, all of us, you know, first and foremost, are concerned for the, the people of Ukraine and everyone who's trying to help them. I, I know in teaching situations, there will be students sometimes who have been through uh, conflict situations and the ramifications, not necessarily this one, but others that can add to a, a conversation. And of course, when you and I sat down to write the principles book, it was really all about economic linkages and, and trade-offs and basically unintended consequences, if you will, when somebody shakes something up. The way I think about principles in, in the Ukraine are in three categories. Um, the first would be supply disruptions. You know, Russia is not a um, contemporary industrial economy like most Western democracies. It is much more a commodity economy. Uh, oil and gas are in the news, but Russia has a, probably a bigger market presence in the markets for palladium, aluminum, nickel. Uh, along with oil and gas, these sound important because they are. Uh, they are parts of manufacturing supply chains and energy. Europe, for example, gets about 40% of its gas uh, from Russia. So a, a first order effect is, is supply disruptions, uh, which we know are inflationary at a time when of course inflation is already high uh, in the West for, for other reasons. So I, I think these commodity effects are going to be important. The commodity effects won't just have a price uh, mechanism. They'll also have a humanitarian toll. The Ukraine, for example, is uh, a major wheat exporter and uh, African imports of wheat from Ukraine and some parts of Asia uh, will be affected. So this could be a humanitarian issue as well as a, a price issue. For oil, a lot of this is a wake-up call, I think, for substitution Europe could, for example, do more gas business with the United States, but it would require investments in um, liquefied natural gas ports. You know, U.S. gas prices are very low compared to Europe or Asia. You'd think that's an obvious trading opportunity, but it requires capital uh, investments uh, as well. A second category I would identify as financial disruptions, because we have seen bank runs basically breaking out uh, in Russia. Uh, as a consequence is both of, of public policies uh, and of fear. Uh, those will have some effects in the West as well through uh, stock prices and bond prices. 
but largely the people uh, of Russia will suffer and suffer they will do harshly uh, for the duration of those financial dis uh, dislocations. And the final is cyber. You know, Russia has been a significant player in cyber attacks uh, before uh, the Ukraine crisis. At the moment, security experts believe that cyber attackers are busy helping the Russian state on other matters, but cyber attacks could well uh, resume force uh, after the closing of the Ukraine conflict, whenever that, uh, whenever that is, which is a further increase in transactions uh, costs. So I, I think that these linkages, unpleasant as they may be, are going to play out uh, over the next several months uh, and years. And we'll have to see. What do you think? I think that's an excellent summary that uh, we often forget just how interconnected the global economy is. And that's been a good thing in the sense that globalization has allowed, as we talk about in the textbook, allowed countries to take advantage of comparative advantage that um, different countries are better producing different products. Uh, economies of scale, right? The, an insight dating back all the way to Adam Smith is that the larger the market that you're selling in, the more likely you can uh, engage in economy, you can take advantage of economies of scale. So it, it's a, an interconnected world and we sometimes forget that um, that's been a good thing. It's been disruptive in certain respects. In fact, you have written a book on ways to, to deal with the disruptions from globalization, but it also has raised incomes. And there's no doubt that significant unraveling of the globalized economy would reduce incomes in the United States and in most other countries. So I think you, you, you summed up very well some of the potential dangers in the situation that we're in right now. I thought maybe a, a, as a follow-up, um, I'd ask you about something we've talked a lot about in the last few podcasts, and that is monetary policy. That the Federal Reserve, as a result of what's been going on the last week or so, is in a, a, a kind of an awkward position that prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there seemed to be a consensus that because of rising inflation in the United States, that the Fed would increase its target for the federal funds rate, which of course is the interest rate that commercial banks and other large financial firms charge each other in overnight loans. And it's been um, essentially zero since the beginning of the pandemic when the Fed brought it down. So the thinking was that it would raise its target probably by a quarter percentage point at the next meeting of the Federal Market Committee, which is mid-March, and maybe raise it every subsequent meeting for the rest of the year. So do you still think that that will happen? Um, do you think that they'll feel that they can no longer uh, raise interest rates as, as quickly as they had intended because of some of the effects that we talked about? Or will it all depend on how things develop? Well, another great question. I, I assume the Fed will be data dependent, obviously, but nothing I at least see so far in the current crisis uh, would suggest that the Fed skip its tightening cycle. Um, the inflationary pressures we're seeing are in part supply chain related, but they're in part because demand is growing too fast. And it's 
very hard to arrest that inflation without restraining demand. Indeed, I think the Fed may have to tighten substantially to do that. It will be harder to bring financial conditions in line, and that may require a lot of tightening on the Fed's part. So I don't see that as changing. I think where the Fed will be active is in thinking about the global situation. So because of the sanctions uh, in Russia, the Fed may also be needing to think about dollar swap lines with um, other parts of the world to make sure that dollars um, are in supply for global commerce. But I don't see the Fed's uh, domestic situation changing that much. That, of course, may not be how they see it, which is the far more important uh, question. But at least the statements from Fed officials uh, don't seem to indicate any change of plans. You mentioned the sanctions um, that the United States, the European Union, and many other countries have placed on the Russian economy. A couple, two questions. Do you think that the, I guess the, the um, French finance minister um, <clears throat> gave a speech either late last night or early this morning, I'm not sure, in which he indicated that, um, I think it was a he, just quickly glance at the story, um, that, the, that the sanctions would have a devastating effect on the Russian economy. Do you think that that's right? Because there've been different stories being told about whether you know, some of the carve outs for energy and so on mean that in fact, this, the sanctions will not be um, that severe on the Russian economy. And I guess a related question that really goes maybe more to the political economy of this, do you think that the sanctions are likely to be effective in changing Russian government policy? Are there any historical um, precedents that we can look at that might help us to gauge whether the sanctions, if they are effective, are likely to change Russian government policy? Well, it's a great set of questions, Tony. I, I think for sanctions themselves, the politically easy thing to do, as your question suggested, is uh, fairly narrow sanctions that are symbolic. The problem is they're easy to circumvent. So, for example, as a PhD student here at Columbia who studied the 2014 sanctions when um, President Putin went into the Crimea, and found that because those sanctions were narrow, the Russians were able to use uh, public funds through the central bank to basically circumvent sanctions against banks. Now, the broader sanctions are, are powerful. And I would agree with the French, bar, uh, the French finance minister that these are quite devastating sanctions. But of course, that their devastating uh, nature implies that they're gonna have effects on us as well. I, I've noted some economic bemusement when our president said, well, we want sanctions that hurt them and not us. Well, you know, all commercial transactions have two sides, right? So I assume that if two parties were transacting, they both thought they were better off. And so if I somehow break that link, it's hard to say only one loses and the other gains. So I, I think that for these broad sanctions, the question will be, what is the substitutability because of energy payments? And will that continue? And what is the exit from these broad sanctions? I mean, the Russian people will suffer mightily. And, you know, query, just as we're asking whether President Putin has an off-ramp for Ukraine, do we in the West have an off-ramp 
for these sanctions. Uh, your question about how effective are they? They're very effective as an economic tool. I'm less persuaded by the evidence they're that effective politically uh, in terms of uh, getting a, a regime change or a policy change. The only thing politically that would change the equation in Russia would be for the Russian people to take to the streets and protest. Whether this causes them to do that, hard to, hard to tell. Yeah, it, the, the sanctions are interesting. Um, I guess in a maybe in a, a money and banking class or a, a, an international finance class, um, more than in a principles course. That um, it, it might be worth talking about some of the of the details of it. A lot of it involves the plumbing of the international financial system. And there was someone who mentioned, if you suddenly have to become an expert on the plumbing in your home, you know you've got a problem. Yep. And if you suddenly have to, have to start <clears throat> thinking about the <clears throat> plumbing of the international financial system, you know that, that you've got a problem. And one of the things that we've learned, I think, is that the central banks uh, are, the central bank of Russia in particular, has, has the bulk of its um, reserves actually in other countries. So one of the, the sanctions that have been levied on them is an attempt to keep them from um, converting those um, reserves um, into uh, dollars in a way that would allow them to support the value of the ruble. Right, so the, the value of the ruble has declined dramatically, which has negative effects on the, the Russian economy, increases, for instance, inflation, because to the extent that um, they're still importing goods, um, the prices go up. Um, in terms of the, um, the effect of the sanctions, it's, it, it's an interesting political economy exercise because, and I think, I, I'm definitely out of my lane, and you may be out of your lane on this as well, that if you look at um, who is making decisions in Russia, certainly it is President Putin, and the, the conventional story about sanctions, such as those we've imposed for years on North Korea and for the last few years on Venezuela, is that it's that the, the people who, in an autocratic regime, the people making the decisions are not that much affected because they can still live good lives, even if the sanctions are making it difficult for the average person in those countries to- um, Maybe, maybe. I mean, it, your, your point about um, the central bank reserves is a very interesting one because I think President Putin seemed to believe he had bags of cash or gold somewhere. Of course he didn't. Right. He had deposits at foreign central banks, which can be frozen. Now, of course, Query once we've done that once, you know, does everybody start to put a risk premium either on SWIFT transactions or central bank transactions? But to your issue, who gets hurt by sanctions? I remember the last time I went to Russia was just as the Soviet Union was in decline. And that's how long ago it's, it's been. And the fact that one saw everywhere a system that had produced empty shelves and a lack of prosperity flew in the face of what Adam Smith thought the goal of an economy was in the first place. So eventually the pressure became to bear. So I, I'm more optimistic, but if the question is whether the uh, evidence supports easy political wins from sanctions, it really doesn't. 
one of the things I was thinking about um, recently was that even though Putin appears to be firmly in control, some of the other major players um, are, are, are being hurt, right? The so-called oligarchs, the Russian business people who um, own companies that control a large chunk of the economy, the Russian economy prior to the invasion, they were for the most part able to freely travel in the West. They kind of famously own expensive homes in London, many of them, they have yachts and so on. Many of them have been, most of them seem to have been cut off from that. So they, to the extent that they can affect the regime or even help to bring about uh, a, a change in regime, uh, the sanctions could be hurting in that respect. And I guess the other is the military, that things, once again, I'm out of my lane here, but things don't seem to have gone in Ukraine as Putin apparently expected. The lightning campaign, they would put in a, uh, a regime in, in Kyiv that would be favorable to them. Instead, they, they seem bogged down and it, this may not be something that the Russian military bargained for, particularly if it becomes street fighting and all those kinds of things. And then if putting in a, a favorable regime to Russia uh, it is gonna be difficult to do, then you get into a situation where the military would be having to remain there as an occupation force. And once again, something probably the Russian military did not actually um, expect. So you have those two uh, groups who have some ability to, to affect Russian policy, or maybe some ability to affect the regime change, <clears throat> excuse me, who may not see what's been happening as, as in their own best interest. Um, maybe we can we we can move on to something that that you've mentioned already, um, and that's the the wider implications for the international political and economic system. Um, you know, we I, I, as people have pointed out, this is really the first time since 1945 that we've seen uh, a major war in Europe. Um, we're as you pointed out, we're seeing disruptions to some of the plumbing of the international financial system, the so-called SWIFT system that banks use to message each other when there are flows of funds, um, correspondent banking. And one of the things that has become um, clear is that if you're a, 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 a bank in Russia and you're buying something from a bank from um, uh, and doing a transaction with a bank, say in Japan, and if it's in dollars, it typically flows through a large U.S. bank, a correspondent bank, and um, to, for the most part, the Russian banks have been cut off from that, unless the the flow of funds is going to buy oil and so on. So, as you point out, this is happening now. We can say, well, this is a crisis, and you know, we'll move beyond this. But is there a fear that, in fact, we're stepping back from that international, political, uh, financial, economic system that has, in many ways, underpinned the uh, income growth that we've seen in the last um, the last few decades? Really, I mean, is that is that a fear that maybe we're crossing Rubicon here, that we're turning a corner, and we may both this and also the disruptions that came from COVID of people worrying about supply chains. Do you have to bring them back? Do you step away from globalization? 
do you think that we'll look back on this week that we've just gone through and say, that was a time in which we really had a significant change in the international system? I think there are two big changes, Tony. One is the one you've highlighted, which is uh, putting uh, easy, low transactions costs uh, globalization at risk. That was already at risk because of the pandemic and frankly, because of some political issues in large Western democracies as well, where people, many political, even mainstream political leaders were questioning it. But I think there's an even deeper concern that markets haven't really talked much about and is great to raise in class, which is the need for higher defense spending. So in Germany, the German government, um, a center-left government, uh, has requested 100 billion euros in additional defense spending and called on non-US NATO allies to substantially raise defense spending. Now, Germany is one of the few uh, advanced economies that has a lot of fiscal space. But if you look at most of uh, our NATO allies in Europe and including our own country, uh, a significant increase in the defense budget would entail trade-offs. If you go to the discussion we have in the book, you know, if you do a pie chart of what government looked like, let's say in 1970 versus today, it used to look like more public goods, including the military and less social spending. Now it's just the opposite. If we were to increase defense spending, we would either have to raise taxes substantially or we'd need to cut social spending. Neither one of those seems like a politically easy thing to do. So I think that's a discussion that's going to vex politicians for some time. Yeah, that, that's a very good point that um, following the Cold War, defense budgets around the world, including the United States, declined. And of course, that contributes, it's sometimes called the peace dividend, it does contribute to increased income in the sense of the ability of people to buy goods and services. Because as you say, with the production possibility frontier, if we're moving towards a point that involves more defense spending, more tanks, planes, ships, and so on, then we have just as a matter of a constraint that we only have so many machines and, and raw materials and, and workers to produce those things, we're reducing the things that contribute to our standard of living. And that would be true in the US. You read, once again, I'm out of my lane here, but you read people saying, well, if we have to worry about long-term hostilities with Russia at the same time that we have to worry about um, China potentially trying to reclaim Taiwan, then we might need a significant increase in defense spending in the US. So that does come with real costs that you reduce the amount of consumption goods then that, that people have available um, to buy. And of course, that's really what taxes do, right? If the government increases taxes, it takes money that people would otherwise spend on cars and furniture and other things and uses that money to buy planes and tanks and so on. So Glenn, we haven't really talked about um, China. Uh, there are a couple of, of relevant aspects here. One is um, China has not really come to Russia's aid to the extent that we, we um, understand it in terms of helping them to avoid sanctions. But then there's also the question of if China were to move on Taiwan in a way similar to how Russia has moved on Ukraine, would China 
be it would be able to um, affect China's policies through sanctions in the way that we're attempting to do with Russia? Well, it's a very interesting question, Tony. I think for China, given its increasing importance economically, that's the only area I know about, so I'll talk about that, it needs to play an economic leadership role on the world stage, which would require you know, taking a stand here and helping to resolve things economically. As to sanctions, you know, sanctions against a country like China are harder than Russia. Uh, unlike Russia, China is integrated into the global economy. It did not have a fortress strategy, in fact, quite the contrary. So going back to a point I made earlier, anytime you strike uh, an opponent, in this example, China, you're striking yourself too in that transaction. It doesn't mean it's that you wouldn't do it, but it means sanctions would have to be fought through. I would think this is an opportunity for both sides to be imagining what their economic and financial affairs would look like. And goodness knows, I, I, I hope that's only an academic exercise. Those are good points. Uh, I, I guess a related point is that whereas Russia in a sense did not have as big a stake in sort of all the aspects of the international economy because Russia has been mainly an exporter of uh, natural gas and oil, whereas China of course is a net importer of raw materials, not an exporter. And China's growth has really been dependent on exports of manufacturing products to large markets like the US and the European Union and so on. So in that sense, you would think that China would have a greater stake in the world economic system, a point that you made, and that um, might be less likely to do things that would cause the world economic system to um, be disrupted because uh, their growth has really been dependent on it in a way that really hasn't been true of Russia. Okay, Glenn, I think that was, a, that was a great discussion. We hope that it was helpful to instructors who might be listening and uh, thinking of ways in which they can bring these issues into the classroom. Uh, just a reminder again that this podcast is available on iTunes, so you can subscribe if you like. You can also, if you would, keep checking our blog at Hubbard O'Brien Economics, all one word, .com, where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive emails that will tell you when we post something new. We also have a Twitter account, which you can find by searching on the Twitter site for Hubbard O'Brien Economics. So thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time.